Welcome on into Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. And today, friends, we are revisiting some of the episodes we loved here on the show. And back in June, Avi, you probably remember, Philly was recognized as the amazing food city it is by the one and only James Beard Foundation. Their coveted culinary awards that represent the best of the best. They are the Oscars of the food world. And we are a food city for sure, Avi. We already knew. We knew. The rest of the world now knows. (laughs) Ultimately, Philly snagged four of the prestigious awards, and we had the the deep pleasure of talking with two of the winners for a fascinating conversation, Ellen Yin of High Street Hospitality Group and Nook Suntaranen, the chef and owner of Kalea Thai Kitchen. Both of you are career changers did something kind of different before you got into the food industry full time. And Alan, I kind of want to start with you. And then I want to go to you, Nook. You started out in healthcare consulting (laughs) in the 90s and then decided to make the leap. Right. What caused you to do that? Well, like so many people in this country, I started uh, my first job out of high school, in high school, working in a restaurant. And I never forgot that experience, Mm -hmm. loved it, always had a dream of opening a restaurant. But I knew that it was a long road. And my parents were definitely against it. And so I always thought, I'll just have a backup plan just in case. And throughout my young adult years, I constantly came back to the idea of opening a restaurant. And I worked in advertising, I worked in fundraising. And then I went back and got my MBA in healthcare. And I still didn't feel the same satisfaction in my work that I did when I was working in a restaurant. And I just decided after that point, that um, after working in consulting, that I would try to open a restaurant. And Nook, you were a flight attendant? I was a flight attendant. And together, owning my own Italian restaurant in Bangkok, when... I moved from Bangkok to Philadelphia. I closed my restaurant and I told myself never again. I'm mm-hmm. done. Because, you know, the restaurant was same size with my restaurant that I opened in Philadelphia. It's 35 seat and I had such a hard time, you know. We were very busy and very famous at the beginning and then with the uh, political turmoil in Bangkok back then, it hit us very hard. And then when I got you know, I'm married to my husband, and I have to move here because I got green card. I decided that I'm going to retire. I'm going to stay home. I want to be a housewife because I think housewives sound very good. It's my dream <laughs> job. So it's for me to, like, you know, change the career being a housewife. And I was happy about it, and I never think I'm going to open the restaurant again ever in my life. So what drew you back in? Because everything you hear about the restaurant mm-hmm. industry is that it's a grind. There are really no vacations. It's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, consumes-you type Mm -hmm. of profession. But you were ready to get out, and it pulled you back in. So what was the thing that pulled you back in? So from 2009 to 2019, before I found a space, I was doing yoga in the morning, walk my dog, garden, cook for the neighbors, and travel. And, you know, I... (laughs) I woke up one day and I was looking at myself and I asked myself a question. Can I keep doing this for another 10 years of my life? I was 50 when I asked myself this question, you know. I have lunch with friends. I have tea in the afternoon. I travel with Ziv and I just doing a lot of things. 
And then I said, no, I cannot. Then mm. I just feel like I need to do something else, something different. I started catering because people ask me to do. It's supposed to be my hobby. It's not going to last long because the way I'm, I'm quite reckless and I have no <laughs> ideas about business. I don't know what happened to me. I think God loved me. People of Philadelphia love my food. That's why I'm still here today. And, you know, I have a lot of inspiration, inspiration from people like Ellen Yin, Mark Vetri, Mike Solomonov, you know, Jose Garcia, Steven Stars, everybody I know in this community. Those people, you guys, inspired me. A lot of those people you mentioned in 1997, Ellen, when you were getting started, mm-hmm. they were either themselves just getting started or not on the scene yet. Describe for folks who weren't living here in 97 when you opened Fork what the restaurant scene in Philly looked like mm-hmm. and what you saw, because it was an old city, what you saw in that neighborhood, in that space that made you think it can work here. <laughs> well, the scene in 1997 was that the city was just getting back on its feet and There was a renaissance of restaurants in the 70s, and um, in the mid-90s is when things started bubbling again for restaurants. And you saw a lot of high-end restaurants. Walnut Street was the place to go out to eat. But there was also a culture of, of course, ethnic cuisine and dining, as well as BYOBs that were very popular, but not much in the middle. And I think that's where I saw the opportunity to have something that was still celebratory, but also could be every day. And I saw that in Fork because, and in Old City because um, the neighborhood was changing. Things were happening. Philadelphia was um, had a brand new convention center. The east side of Market Street was very popular with uh, First Fridays. Uh, and I just thought that that was a huge opportunity, the growth of Center City toward the river. And I still believe in that and um, hope that that continues to move itself forward. I want to talk a little bit about food as culture and as love and as family. Like people use food as a metaphor for so many things. You're bringing in so many things from home, but at the same time, you have to, you're bringing you're bringing it into a different culture here in the U.S., and you want to make sure that you provide people something that they really like. How do you tie it all together? Um, I think it's happened naturally. I never have intention of you know being successful or think people are going to like my food or I I never thought that how I tied it in together. I think it's about me, myself, my upbringing, my background. Uh, We grow up poor. We love food. Dinner time is the best time of our life because my mother, my father, we all struggle when I was young. But food brought us together. That hour at the dining table is joy. And then even though we're poor, my father would never stop inviting people at home. And my mom would never say a word. She cooked. She get the best fish from the market, and we talk, we enjoy the time, and then, you know, after that, maybe like 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, I still have to go out and, you know, help her to do some work. We just continue with our curry paste making and all of that, and then I go to sleep. I grew up with that, and then I became flight attendant. We entertain people, we host people, we give people food, we take care of them, and again, we're still dealing with some time that some people that 
not very nice to us, <laughs> yeah. but we still have to yeah. be nice to them. And then I opened my own restaurant in Bangkok, and I live upstairs. So it's like they come to my house and I talk to them. I they became my friend. I I just believe in what I am doing and I love it so much. When I move here to Philadelphia, I don't have friend. The only ta- thing that I can do is cook and just give it out to my neighbor to to them to try my food because people keep asking me why there is no good Thai restaurant or where is mm. good Thai restaurant. And one turning point was one day I went to a Thai restaurant and asking for something that they could use a fish sauce to make for me. And they said, we do not use fish sauce here. Mm. And I look at them and I said, why not? And they said, because people don't like fish sauce, our restaurant going to be stink. That's got me thinking like someone need to do something different here. Were you mm. surprised, though, that people embraced your cuisine so quickly? Because uh, you had a little spot on South 9th Street. And, of course, the menu is not what many Americans would think of as a Thai food menu. And it's inspired uh, by where you're from uh, in southern Thailand, right? Yes. Did the reaction surprise you at all? Um, Like I told you from the beginning, it's supposed to be the hobby. And when you yeah, have a hobby, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't have any expectation. <laughs> that's right, that's right. I did not. And I came into that's the right. restaurant the first day making seven pounds of chicken for chicken curry in five quart pot. That's it. Steve gave me the number that I have to make to break even. And the first day I hit that. I wow. just we got a little bit past that, so I think, okay, maybe I survive because yeah, <laughs> I might survive this. And then I everything every day I have to keep making bigger and bigger pot of chicken curry and then I know I did something right. Yeah. I did not have time to be surprised because I was too tired and I'm trying hard to survive. Until one day I went outside and I saw like 20 people waiting outside and they're all drinking, they're all having a good time, trying to get into the restaurant and that I know that I did something right. Mm, wow. What a beautiful thing. And I, I want to come back to you, Alan, a little bit because I hear this story about, you know, love, about food, about cooking. I, I know that you have a love for food as well. Can you talk about how you choose the cuisines? Because your restaurants each have slightly different flavors and and styles, how you sort of thread the needle, um, bringing that culture, bringing that, those different types of cuisines to different audiences? Well, as you know, I'm not a chef. Mm -hmm. So um, I sometimes don't always have the input that other chefs might have in their, in creating their experiences. But I'm like Nook in the sense that um, family was it for us and, you know, sharing food with everybody. And I think that that's the connection. I think hospitality is the thing, the ingredient Mm -hmm. for whatever cuisine that you're making, regardless of whether it's Asian, Mexican, contemporary American, whatever that may be defined as. That is a secret ingredient that brings people together and makes them feel comfortable so that they can enjoy your cuisine. Obviously, we can't just have the same menu at every single one of our places, mm-hmm. but uh, we do try to think about what is missing in in you know that particular neighborhood where we might find a potential home. In Old City, I think at that particular time in the 90s, you asked what was 1997 about. There was nothing in that mid-range. There was nothing seasonal. I, when you looked at a menu, tomatoes would be on the menu 12 months out of the year. Well, we all know now 
eating tomatoes in the wintertime may not be as delicious and may not be as sustainable as we'd like it to be. So that is a theme that pervades all our restaurants is sustainability and seasonality. And American cuisine ranges because we're, as everyone knows, we're a melting pot. Different influences come in, and sometimes they're more French-heavy, sometimes they're more Italian-heavy, sometimes they're more Asian, sometimes they're more Latino. It can be anything. If you're just joining us here on Studio 2, let me reintroduce our guests who are at the top of the dining world. Mm -hmm. And that's not me saying that. That's the James Beard Foundation, talking with Nuxun Taranan, cook and owner of the award-winning Kalea Thai Kitchen, uh, which is now in Fishtown and used to be in in South Philadelphia. Also speaking with Ellen Yin, founder and co-owner of High Street Hospitality Group. They both came home with big awards this week from the James Beard Foundation. I wanted to follow up with you, Ellen. Um, I was reading a profile of you in Open Table, and this is a quote. You said, I study the industry a lot. I read a lot. I dine out a lot. And To me, there was some sort of philosophy bound up in that about how someone can stay at the top of the fast-changing restaurant game for a quarter century. You have to be vigilant. You have to be constantly studying, reading, seeing what's coming. Can you explain your process for seeing where the waves are coming in in the dining industry? Well, I'm always reading, like you said, looking at uh, industry publications, but also, you know, major news publications, because sometimes trends come from things that you least expect. I mean, look at what the pandemic did to dining out. We never did any takeout in our restaurant at even High Street, which was the most convertible to the takeout model. We were doing such a minuscule volume of takeout that really we didn't know how we were going to change it over. So I think, like I said, reading, I dine out 365 days a year. You you dine out every day. (laughs) Pretty much. I mean, and sometimes I imagine it's your restaurant, but it's others as well. Absolutely. I love eating at Kalaya and uh, many other restaurants in the city. And sometimes I'm looking for a food that I've never had before. I mean, even though I'm Chinese, I have not eaten food from every single region in China. And I think that that's an important difference. And sometimes the play of the acid with the um, you know, with whatever else, I'm not a chef, so I can't really, <laughs> can't really say. But um, but you know, sometimes it's the concept of yeah. of what it is. And the other thing that's really important about dining out is experience, because hospitality and service are a huge part of the success of any restaurant. We're always trying to see what other people are doing to inspire us, and that I think is why I like to dine out a lot. And I wanted to ask a question um, to both of you, but I wanted to start with you, uh, Ellen. I wanted to talk about the James Beard Foundation. I mean, the organization had faced some controversy a few years ago, a lot of complaints about lack of diversity, and it impacted the honorees. You had been a finalist, your organization finalist a few times, and we see this wave and a whole new like class of, of chefs being honored, restaurants being honored. Have you seen that shift? Um, What is even being honored and lifted up and highlighted from organizations like James Beard and beyond? Well, their motto is good food for good. Uh, And I think that people forget that food is something that we all share. Everybody has to eat in some way, shape or form. And everybody wants to feel that sense of belonging and 
um, satiation and um, hospitality. That is something that is is universally common. The interesting thing about the hospitality industry is that it ranges such a large gamut. I mean, you could pay $2 at a food truck in Philadelphia, or you could go to a high-end restaurant. And I think that people forget that the people who are making food at that that taco truck level or at food truck level, that's as equally about food. And to get to that fine dining, whatever, if that's what you aspire to, to get from food truck to f- fine dining takes a lot of resources. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those resources have to be accessible to all. And I think that is part of why it is so important to highlight people of all levels and all ethnicities and diversity in this process because we only get a range of things for the entire world if we are recognizing that we have to you know, help everyone. And that's the follow-up question to you, Nook. What does this award mean for your uh, restaurant, mean for you? For me to get to this point, it could inspire a lot of, you know, people like me who move into this country and we love cooking. We want to have something of our own. We don't want to lose our integrity. We still want to preserve the memory of our childhood about what we are eating, about our culture, and we want to present it to the world. Big or small, it doesn't matter. You know, people, everyone starts somewhere. I agree with Ellen. It doesn't matter where we are, where we come from, you know, what color our skin is. I love to see, you know, this year at the the award ceremony that is so diverse. And that's what I am so happy about. It's give the feeling for people like me who come from Thailand, have no uh, ideas about how the business in America going to be like, how people are going to like my food or not. But I believe in what I am doing. I just cook the food from my memory. I just cook the food from my childhood. I just present it because I want to do it, because I love my country, because I love our culture. And I think my food should be presented in the right way. I think I deserve all kind of attention and award as same as, you know, so many people. We all deserve the same kind of attention because we all work hard. And that was our conversation with James Beard Award winners Ellen Yin of High Street Hospitality Group and Nook Suntaranen, the chef and owner of Kaleya Thai Kitchen. Coming up next, our chat with poet and author... Kwame Alexander. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman Arendt. Cherry and I are off today, so we're revisiting some of our favorite segments here on Studio 2. One of my favorites was our chat with poet Kwame Alexander. You may know him as the author of dozens of books for young readers, like his Newbery Award-winning young adult book, The Crossover. Or maybe you've heard him on NPR, where he's the poet in residence and does community crowdsourced poetry, composing a poem 
with the help of listeners. Well, we sat down with Kwame Alexander in June, soon after his new book came out. It's a memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night. Through poems, recipes, letters, and prose, Alexander reflects on his life, his relationships with his parents, his daughters, the mistakes he's made as a father and husband, and the wisdom he's gained. Take a listen. You set up the book on page five. You say it is not a traditional memoir. Instead, it is a monument of love. Why a memoir now in your life, and why use such a non-traditional format? You know, my 14-year-old wants to wear clothing that her mother and I loathe. We are freaking out. We're like, no. There's constant arguments going on. She comes home. She goes in the room. She doesn't want to talk. You know, she does all the teenage things. Mm-hmm. I've been really honored and blessed to have this career. But I started realizing, like, my whole personal life, I haven't really given a whole lot of attention to it. Mm. I wasn't sleeping as well. I just was stressed a lot. And I just wasn't that happy. Mm. And so as I began to think about all the transitions that I'm in, I really did the thing I've always done when I'm trying to understand the woes of my world. I wrote about it. Your publisher, your editor, your agent, when you said, hey, I'm not going to do a YA book for this next project, they were cool with it? Was that a, was that a conversation you had to have with them? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I write to help young people imagine a better world. Yeah. And here I was now about to write my personal life as an adult. And so one of the things I know I was afraid of is are librarians and teachers who buy my kids' books for their students, are they going to stop buying my books now that I've begun, begun to write about love? and sexuality and all these things that have, you know, very little place in the lives of of 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds. But I saw this teacher on Instagram and she posted how much she loved the book and then her eyes got big and she said, and he wrote about his sexuality. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I think we're good. (laughs) So I want to sort of lay the foundation with readers who may not know a lot about you, but they've heard your name and they've read some of your books for for younger people. And I want to set it up through the excerpt on page 21, if you could read that. Memory can be harsh, unforgiving. When I look back on my childhood and young adulthood, I do not remember hot dogs and soda pop summers. My tongue was never sweet on cotton candy because there were no moonlit carnivals. I remember craving your touch, some small ritual of precious contact, like a drop of water in noonday heat. Time was money. Smiles were seldom. Our home was serious business, book publishing, with little time for little things like card games or ping pong or talking. Your conversations were instructions. Mow the lawn like this. Take the leaves like that. And when orders come in, make sure you take down the message verbatim. When you travel to some church to preach about black liberation theology or some conference to speak about teaching the culturally particular African-American child, I'd simultaneously miss my father and feel rescued from the prison of words you kept me in. For folks who may not know you, I just want you to kind of set up your family structure (laughs) and, and explain this complicated but evolving relationship with your dad. Books were reward and punishment in my home. Books were boring and cool. So my dad was stayed incomprehensible to me as a kid, an academic, extremely bookish. 
My mother was all about words, but it was the fun, cool words. It was the storytelling, the African folktales. It was the songs. It was the poems. Like It was Dr. Seuss. So I grew up like thinking that, oh my gosh, books are really boring and I don't want to have anything to do with them. To words and stories are so cool and so fun. All these years later, I've written 39 books. I know it's because of the impact that this bookish household had on me, on my life. If you're just joining us on Studio Two, we're speaking with the author Kwame Alexander, poet and author of 39 books. His newest is a memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night. And it's a this very distinct, non-traditional memoir. And so as a result, you know, I've read it. You grew up in New York. Right. Mom, dad, in the world of letters, in the world of education. But something as simple, I guess, as like how many siblings you had. I mean, maybe it's in there somewhere, uh-huh. but, it's, but it's moving around in such a... Right. So like, can you give me some background of like you know, where you lived growing up, uh-huh. who was in your family unit, you know, and, and like where those breadcrumbs are sort of buried in the book? Wow. So that's interesting. I, I see you sort of saying like, Dude, your memoir is like a Basquiat painting. It's like all, it's very abstract. I Can know we get you, but concrete? I don't know you. That's the way I feel. But here's the thing about that. Like nobody, what I've discovered in writing this book is that very few people have really known me. Like this book is me getting known in a, in a whole much more vulnerable way. And still, there are still breadcrumbs, as you say. So I still haven't given you everything. But I've given what seems like a lifetime, a world of who I am, and it's really been uncomfortable. I grew up in New York City. I have two amazing sisters and a brother. I'm the oldest. My siblings, you know, when I, <laughs> my siblings, since I'm the oldest, my mom passed away in 2017. Um, I held her hand on the deathbed, and I said, you can go. I got this. I'll take care of everyone. I didn't know what that meant. And so over the next couple of years... I didn't take care of everyone. I sort of was the older brother. I'm in charge, you know, not really remembering that her kindness, her compassion, her love was gone. And I needed to step in and sort of give that. Mm -hmm. I need to put myself sort of on the back burner and extend a little bit of love and grace and kindness and compassion in the way that she would have. to my siblings who were perhaps getting on my nerves, asking big brother for money or whatever it was. And so it took me a couple of years. And once I did that, I think maybe a month ago, my siblings and I were together in the same house for the first time since we'd all been children. Wow. It was a beautiful, magical thing. And it all happened because I wrote a book, as my sister likes to say, is my, you know, remember the best man when he wrote that memoir and mm-hmm. everybody's upset? <laughs> like they, my sister was like, oh, you did that. You put, you put it out there. <laughs> And it was hard, but I think ultimately it's been fruitful and beneficial to my family and definitely to me. Your father was a major influence, but so was your mother. And there was this one statement about your mom in your letter to your dad where your mom says, and I'm going to read it. I don't read as eloquently as you do, Kwame, but you said, once mommy asked me why I wrote so many poems about you and never wrote poems about her. I tried to explain that poets, like comedians, rarely speak about the things and people who make them happy. Only the ones who cause us heartache and misery. 
Why is that true? And it seems like in this book, you try to break from that mold by talking about things that you love. Yeah. We want to make order out of chaos. Like that's what artists do. Mm. We're trying to make the world a little bit more palatable, a little bit more digestible, to be able to appreciate it more and our place in it. When I think about the pain that I was that, that I was going through, I also, because I write for children, I traffic in joy and upliftment. So it's like, well, how am I going to write a book that's dealing with my pain but still make it somewhat uplifting? And I was like, well, Kwame, you're going to rewrite. You're going to talk about the story, but you're going to sort of sh- rewrite the narrative in particular, as it relates to your two daughters. At some point in their lives, they're going to wonder about your relationship with their mothers. Mm -hmm. And it cannot be defined by this separation or divorce. That can't be the thing that defines that relationship. And so I said, well, I'm going to write about, you know, how, how your father loved, how he loved your mothers. Not just what happened and how it didn't, how it ended, but how he loved them, how, how you were made. Let's try to create that sort of narrative. So I just tried to flip it a little bit and talk about not just the woe, but also the wonder, not just the tragedy, but also the triumph. You mentioned in that excerpt about like the happiness that your mother gave you, the comfort that your mother gave you. That really permeates the book. At the very end, you have a, an essay called Portrait of a Mother and Son, and you talk about your mom with a ton of reverence, and you detail all of these things she did for others in addition to pursuing her own career. And then you wonder in the essay if she ever cried at night. Do you think your mom was happy and lived a happy life? I do. I do. You know, um, she has she has two amazing daughters. You know, she has she has a pretty incredible son, the youngest of us. And I remember her laugh. I remember her smile. I I remember I used to get upset when I got punished because I was pretty precocious and she sent me to my room. That was the worst punishment because I didn't want to be alone, which is a whole nother story, but we ain't got to get into that right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd be in my room. I hate her. I hate this woman. And she'd come in and she'd immediately do something she read, read, she'd read a poem, tell a story. It'd be something like, uh, folks, if birthing is hard and dying is mean, why not get yourself a little loving in between? <laughs> and then she'd turn out and walk out the room, and I'd be pissed because I'm now not so angry because I'm laughing. But she had this way to just infect you with joy and possibility and hope. And, and it was a beautiful counterbalance to this revolutionary activist bookish father who under whose whose way to love was to take care of his family i don't need to tell you i love you i'm out here in this world doing the work to show you to give you a life so it was a great counterbalance to have that Mm. oh she was she was the best and and the funny part you know cherry shared this earlier she was like why you'll never write poems about me and of course now i've written a whole book (laughs) because she's gone and this is me grieving one of the things you talked about was the you've learned so much about being a dad. You have two daughters, two from good dads, bad dads. You learn things about parenting from your mom. Right. Can you just give us some of those tidbits that you learned? Because you've had conflicts with your daughter where 
one didn't speak to you for a period of time. Like, what did you learn that was good and bad from from your parents that you took and and you paid it forward with your kids? Yeah, my I have two daughters. My oldest, um, Nandi, she's the one who who um, hasn't we haven't spoken in a while. and I miss her dearly. The the youngest is fourteen, Samaya, and um, I love those names, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you, Samaya. Um, I've learned so much from her. I've learned so much from my kids about how to be a parent. Yeah, I learned a lot from my parents, and a lot, you know, of what not to do, and a lot of what to do. But mostly, what I've learned from a father mm. is the actual work, and so. My kid, when she gets upset, she, Samaya, she goes in her room and closes the door. She doesn't have a problem being alone. I'm done with y'all. For, I, need a, I need a moment. And, of course, my thing is that I learned from my mother. I went to her room, and I'm immediately telling her a joke, trying to get her to smile like my mother did to me. And one day she says to me, Cherry, she says, Dad, sometimes it's okay to just sit in your anger. You don't have to just be happy and smile and every time so I was like oh my goodness you're right I'm learning so much from these two girls to you know that that hopefully will help me be a better dad okay this question is going to sound a little process oriented but I'm just genuinely curious as you're writing this it's coming into its final form you know it's going to be published pretty soon is that the part point where you send it around to all the people who are going to be in this book in some way or the other or how do they? How are they looped into it without it interfering with your creative process? So it doesn't, you know, water down or filter your your real thoughts because you are really bleeding onto the page here. Yeah, y'all get deep. That's how we do. <laughs> I'm curious. The next I'm, time, I'm genuinely curious about this. Next time my publisher says uh, W H Y one you, I'm gonna be like, uh, you sure? <laughs> I'll be there. Um, so why fathers cry at night started off as a book of love poems. Mm-hmm. That's it. Just love poems. No context, just metaphors. I sent it to different people. I sent it to Steph. You know, I sent it to different people. Read this. What you think about this poem? Everybody's like, yeah, I love that poem. Eventually, I realized and my editor realized, oh, this is more than a book of love poems. You're telling a story. So now I'm really filling it out and it's becoming this memoir. I'm giving context. Avi, I didn't send it to nobody. Interesting. I was like, nobody's going to read this. I didn't even I didn't even think about it. I did not send it to anyone. And then I got the advanced reading copies in February. I sent it to everyone because it's done now. I start reading the book. I'm having panic attacks. There's no way I can publish this book. I painted a self-portrait of myself. It would not have been fair to paint a self-portrait of the people who I love and who love me. I painted my portrait. But the thing about it is there were people in the background of the painting that I never thought about. If I had known I was writing a memoir, I probably would not have done it. But to answer your question, no, I didn't send it to anyone. And I've heard about it since. Trust me. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I want to ask a follow-up question to something you said earlier about no one ever really knowing you. Mm -hmm. And I want to tie it to what Avi just brought up. Do you feel like once people read the book, do you feel like they were able to take a step closer to knowing who you are? Absolutely. And what was their reaction to it? And more importantly, I was able to step, take a step closer to knowing who I was. Mm. I still, it's still a work in progress. But having people know me 
has been the hardest and the most rewarding thing ever. How are you going to go through life and not being your true, authentic self? I have comments that range from, um, wow, Kwame, who are you? To, yeah, I'm dealing with something very similar. Thank you for sharing that part of you. It's helping me. To my father, who said, I read your little memoir. (laughs) (laughs) And I will be suing for defamation of character and slander. And he said it in jest. But the real beautiful thing is, in writing this book, the conversations he and I have had have been unlike anything I could have ever imagined. And so I'm getting to know my father. He's getting to know me. And ultimately, I'm just I'm just going to be better. And you and your dad are really close now at this point. I know the book says it was harsh growing up. Right. But you guys are friends, like really good friends now. We've been friends for a minute. But we're closer now. It's, 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 more, it's more real. It's more authentic. It's more, these are some of the questions I've wanted to ask, and here are some of the answers. It's just making us more of a, uh, more of real human beings, I think. I'm trying to imagine how powerful this would be for your dad, who has such a reverence for almost obsession with books and letters, reading about himself in a book by his son. I was really curious, especially reading early on the incident, there's an incident with a car crash and he's asking you to basically save the books. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you think his love of letters comes from? Like where, where is it rooted for him? Have you been able to understand that? So look, I complain a lot about how he never said, I love you as a kid. And I've asked him about it. He just learned, so he learned how to text. I bought him an iPad. So he's texting, he's 81. (laughs) He texted me randomly one night, and he says, when I went into the Air Force, my mother would write me letters. I never heard my parents tell me, I love you, Kwame. But when I went into the Air Force, my my mother would write, write me a letter once a week. My father never wrote me a letter, but he bought the stamps for her. And then he said, He never said, I love you, Kwame. When I was five years old, I used to read the newspaper to my father, and he listened to me read the entire paper. I never knew. I never, he never said, I love you, Kwame, but I knew it. I think my father is an uncanny, brilliant writer who, who created a writer, he and my mother. And I think to answer your question, I have no idea where he learned his love of words. It probably has something to do with reading the newspaper to his dad, with getting letters from his mom, which were both evidence of the way they loved him. And that was the way he showed me he loved me. That was our conversation with the award-winning poet and author, Kwame Alexander. I like that one, too. We've we've been busy these past four (laughs) months, Avi. We might know what we're doing. Well, jury's out. Yeah, jury's out. We're still learning, yes. Coming up, we're talking about food again. We love to eat, but this time, it's ancient and it's inedible. And it's on display at Penn Museum.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. Today, we're looking back on some episodes that we love. In just a few short months since our show got off the ground, we've talked quite a bit about food. I guess we are big foodies here, apparently. And next on our radio menu (laughs) is ancient leftovers. Think about seeds that are thousands of years old, dry meat preserved 700 years ago. You can't eat it but you can view it right now at Penn Museum. Yes, your eyes should be bigger than your stomach on this one. <laughs> when the museum opened their ancient food and flavor exhibit, we talked to Dr. Kate Moore, a teaching specialist at the Center for the Analysis of Archaeological Materials and the co-curator of the show. Kate, welcome to Studio 2. Thank you so much. So first, can you describe to us what you'll see when you walk in and you take in ancient food and flavor. Give us a sense of of the visual before us. Well, first of all, we, um, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good place to start. It includes a a wide variety of ways for people to get into thinking about food. We have a food timeline. We have an interactive food tableau so people can contribute their own food stories. We have four beautiful garden panels. We have big projections so that you can see the past come to life. And then the core of it was a series of choices from the Penn Museum's collection that were the for the first time we are showing the actual direct remains of foods, things we don't bring out very often because they need a lot of explanation and a lot of context. A lot of it looks kind of dented and dried up and even unappetizing. But one of the things we're trying to present is the connections with flavor. I mean, we were just talking about flavor mm-hmm. with your other guests, the connection with um, the landscape and the landscape of production and the landscape of Um, sustenance, and then the way that food comes together in particular kinds of dishes and tools and images, the world that we build around food that is a more, in some ways, a more familiar uh, outcome of doing archaeology, you know, pots and stuff like that. We're, We're all about food. I initially, this was pitched to us, our producer said, oh, ancient foods, I'm thinking, this does not sound appetizing, right? And you mentioned that, but what were you able to find and how in the world were these pieces of food preserved all this time? Well, that's a very good question because there are three different ways that food that we're showing was preserved. The first is some of the most simple that they were just in a very dry environment and they are oh. still with us on the dry coast of Peru. One is where they were covered by gradual um, climate change. So a lake in Switzerland got deeper and deeper and deeper and covered this ancient landscape. And the stuff has been maintained in a wet state for 4,000, 5,000 years. Really? Wow. And then um, the most recently excavated stuff was done with more modern techniques where if we think that there may be food remains that might have been burned and kind of charred into little recognizable crisps, we'll very carefully sieve and separate that soil with water. And then those little carbonized food remains, little tiny seeds and bits of fruit and shells of nuts pop to the top. We skim them off. And that's when the fun begins of turning those dried, kind of stepped on and destroyed things into the the story of the food that's in, involved. Fascinating. And right? the story yeah. of the food, I want to get into that. What do these foods tell us about 
Um, the ancient people that ate them. Are there interesting revelations we can tease out about their diets or, or how they lived from these morsels? Diet is, of course, the first thing that we would start thinking about. How did people live? How did people get enough you know, nutrients, mm-hmm. stuff like that? But beyond that is the skill of preparing the food and drying the food and knowing what goes together and knowing what's available and knowing what will be available later and knowing how to save for the next year. This, this world of skill, this world of, world of knowledge of the environment is the thing that we're trying to make the big story. And you can, and you can see that in these ancient preserved food samples? When we have enough of them, absolutely. But the other thing is that we know these environments today. We've spent a lot of time studying traditional foodways in these regions, studying what how food is transformed by cooking techniques so that we can connect what we see in the archaeological record with the foods that we know today. And we can recover the mixtures of food that represent um, meals or food traditions at a particular time of year from the inside of pots, scrape it off, and then do different kinds of analysis. Mm. Yeah, I, I want to take draw a line from the ancient food to today. What did you learn to sort of tie us in about our diets through time? Well, we're still living off the same plants that were domesticated 5, 10, 11, 12,000 years ago. Those foods which were big um, technological and ecological innovations at the time of the first early farming villages, they did that for us, and we are still eating those foods. The way that we eat wheat, corn, rice, millet, potatoes, that comes to us from these early time periods. And in some of these, two of these cases, we're showing some of the very earliest foods of this type that's known in the archaeological record. Now, there's early stuff everywhere. We chose stuff that would make a good display. Um, (laughs) But this is, our world was made by these people, and they made it around food. So that's one of the constants or, or one of the things that connects us from the present to the past. But I understand there's also evidence of adaptation about how people adapted to cl- changing climates in the past that you can find and you can see in these preserved foods. So give us a sense of what those are and what lessons it might carry for us today because we are obviously dealing with a changing yes. climate. Absolutely. And I'm going to step outside my zone of expertise and talk about wheat. Um, because I've worked on the production of wheat in uh, sites that I helped excavate across the deserts of Central Asia. And there we can follow wheat as uh, the wild wheats that are known in Turkey and Anatolia. But we can also see wheats of different shape, including little tiny things called shot wheats that represent very early adaptation to irrigated desert environments. So people taking wheat beyond where wheat was natural and creating environments where they could live off wheat, at the same time changing the environments, changing the way forest, water, soil resources were apportioned to make it a place where you could make these new crops. And the same thing is true of animals, but it's a little harder to uh, wheat because it's usually um, preserved as a whole little seed. You can kind of see what's going on, how fat it is, how long it is. Um, That tells the story of what kind of environment you've given it and what kind of environment that you have um, created in order to keep doing wheat instead of doing something else, for example. So when, I, when we think about like what our adaptation to farmlands are today, we're definitely looking at new strains of our familiar crops. 
We're looking at the knowledge that it takes to bring a new crop into cultivation or the new crop into the cuisine Mm. because we know that learning to eat a more arid, adapted food like millet, for example, would be one obvious choice. Mm -hmm. But if you talk to people in most places, they would say they were familiar with millet as birdseed. They don't consider it it a a high-status food like wheat. And they don't know how to cook it. They don't know how to turn it into bread or noodles, all those things which you can actually do with millet. So that's just one example of a way that we can face change yeah. is mm-hmm. by learning how to adapt better to the crops that have already been domesticated and learning how to measure and understand the impact of different kind of cultivation systems on water and soil. So a concern anyone would have was, is are we going to make a big mistake by trying to maintain our dependence on wheat and corn in the United States, just because that's what we're really kind of think we deserve. Um, If we did things in a different way, if we did it in a different place, if we used water resources more equitably, um, would that make a difference? And so that's some of the kinds of tools we're trying to get people to understand when they look at the past. That was our conversation with Dr. Kate Moore. She's a teaching specialist at the Center for the Analysis of Archaeological Materials, also known as CAM, and co-curator of Ancient Food and Flavor at Penn Museum. The exhibit is open to the public, and you can check it out all the way through fall of next year. And that is it for us. Our producers today are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Our engineer today is Tina Calake. For more of our show, head on over to whyy.org Studio 2. Make sure to subscribe to Studio 2 wherever you get your podcast. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. Thanks for joining us, everybody, and have a wonderful weekend.